Yes. Good evening, sir. Thank you for coming. Thanks for your speech. Um, for those of us that are not snowed by the honeyed words of sophists <laughs> and their vacuous, vapid lives, it seems that the suggestion for the conversion or the evangelization and taking back authority, rightly so, is first ordering one's own heart and then perhaps one's own house and then perhaps one's neighbors and so on. But when the 20th century has shown that it's not just words, it's force that is behind that. And there are 20 million that were killed by Mao, seven by Hitler, 12 by Stalin, these numbers are staggering. I can barely imagine them. What would Peeper, or perhaps you, say of a more ferocious <laughs> nature in defense? That's, that's, a, um, that's a very important question, and, and one that ranges widely. That is, it encompasses a lot of phenomena. Um, I am, I, by temperament, am no optimist at all. Just ask my wife. <laughs> I wish she were here. Uh, she would vouch for that. Nevertheless, even the last century's history gives us instances, not just one or two minor little headlines, but actual movements, historical movements, whereby despotisms and tyrannies that had tremendous force behind them were actually toppled and were toppled by uh, the empt in part, large part in fact, the emptiness of their own sophistical rhetoric being becoming intolerable and becoming intolerable not because you know the bread lines were too long uh, or not only that but becoming intolerable because there, there were, um, shall we say, and, and I'm not trying to drop names or exalt or, you know, canonize people, but there were Solzhenitsyns about who had a profound reverence for the word and language, even in their fiction, not just in their political statements, but even in writing novels in a certain way. You habituate to someone to seeing reality through language more deeply, entering into it more penetratingly, and then they turn their attention to what's happening in the political sphere, and it's gaseous by comparison. Enough of that has actually toppled despotisms and, and can do so again. That sounds very optimistic. I'm kind of ashamed of myself. Um, but but I, I think it's true, you know, the, the question is, what do you do in the face of a gun? It's sort of like the old thing, do you remember, um, was it Stalin? I think it was Stalin um, who, who, uh, who said, how many divisions does the Pope have? Why should Russia, why should the Soviet Union fear uh, the Catholic Church? Well, give it a few decades and watch what happens. Does that, does that approach or address your question? I don't, uh, uh, it seems insufficient. Uh, perhaps I'll leave with one final quote. Uh, it was Thucydides 
if I recall, or one of the other notable pre-Socratics who said, a society that separates its fighters from its thinkers will have its fighting done by fools mm -hmm. and its thinking done by cowards. Right, right. No, that's I'd like to wed both of them, and well, I'm trying to do it in my own life first. Well, the, the, um, at, at the risk of entering into a, in, into a debate, um, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, well, there are others who have questions. The, um, um, beware the fallacy of false opposition. And by that I mean there is nothing in what I said that is actually contrary to what you said or to what you just ended with, okay? Um, you don't have to topple a despot with good language. You just can do. You can also topple them with a firm shove over a tall cliff. <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Boyan. I really enjoyed your talk. Um, I guess getting towards the end of your, your speech, you started offering solutions. Would a solution be more exposure to beauty, and in particular, sort of the beauty of the written word, and even more particular, poetry? Uh, yes. The short answer is yes. But you see, the funny thing is, one of the consequences of a corrupted language is when someone says more exposure to beauty, what do people think that means? People tend to think that means more indulgence in a certain kind of pleasurable experience. And that's partly true, but that's not really the point. Um, the beauty, um, I mean, this, that's a, that's a talk all by itself, right? That's an hour-long talk just on you know, the nature of beauty and why would beauty have the effect of rooting the beholder more firmly in a given metaphysical reality and, and, and therefore um, uh, uh, sort of anchor one's word, the word more closely to that reality. Uh, and there, there are answers to that. Uh, uh, in brief, beauty is not some self-indulgence in superficial phenomena that just happen to be pleasing to me. Beauty is a facet or an aspect of the truth. Beauty and truth are convertible terms. So, so is goodness. Um, that, that, that is, beauty is, has more of an objective character than people think. Do you, do you know, boy, I'm, real, I'm gonna get lynched now. So you know the phrase, um, um, there is, um, what, what is it about? No accounting for taste or there, there is no, um, it's, it's, it's not no accounting. What's the phrase? The, um, that's right. De gustibus non disputandum est is the, is, the, is the Latin. I don't know the English. Um, that's, that's a terribly showing off thing to say, isn't it? Um, so uh, about matters of, of, of delight, there is no argument. Everybody th thinks that means beauty is really a relative thing. It really means the opposite. It means this is beautiful. If you're not capable of seeing that, there's no talking you into it. Sorry. Um, uh, beauty, th there is some real range for individual preference and all of that. that, that there, there, there is, of course. Um, but beauty is really rooted in a metaphysically given reality. And so absolutely, language that is at the 
pitch of its casting molded to that reality, that beautiful reality, whatever it is. That's a great antidote for deracinated, unmoored language. Absolutely. I, I promised you sleep and I've delivered. <laughs>